is it for announcements. So, uh, as I said, we're going to be in Acts 7 this morning. And before I do start, I want to thank um, both Daniel and Vadim for preaching the last couple of weeks. Um, gave me a little bit uh, of a time. I was able to take a vacation with my family as well as just have time to work on some other projects. Um, and it, it just really is, I said it last week, it is a great blessing and honor um, and I felt it again even this morning with, with our band that we have, that God has gifted this church with so many talented, gifted people that are also very humble and servant-minded where they will serve and use those gifts and talents to bless our community um, whenever asked, whenever needed. And, uh, and so, Vadim, Daniel, thank you. If you uh, weren't around for the last couple of weeks and you missed their sermons, you need to go check those out. Both of them, um, as always, just did a great job and they're on the website as well. So, uh, Acts 7, we haven't been here for a few weeks, so I'll, I'll catch us up briefly as we are walking through the book of Acts, this idea of now what, right? Jesus has ascended into heaven, Jesus rose from the dead, defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, and we now and then uh, ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, and now the disciples look around and say, now what do we do? How do we figure this out? How do we be Jesus followers, but he's not here to follow? How do we go forward? And that's much of what the book of Acts has been showing us. And so most recently at the end of chapter 6, in chapter 6, there was an issue that arose in the church where there were some widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food and resources. And the apostles, those who were leading the church, said, we can't do everything all the time, always for everyone. We need some help. And so they prioritized, we're going to focus on preaching and prayer and, and making sure that spiritually this church, this gathering, um, is going to move forward in a way that glorifies Jesus. We need help with some of the day-to-day -day tasks. And so they appoint seven men to be able to kind of oversee some of these day-to-day -day tasks. One of those men is Stephen. And Stephen not only serves the church, but it says in chapter 6 that he is full of grace and power and is doing signs and wonders. And he is apparently teaching in the synagogues the gospel, the message of life found in Jesus Christ. And this angers many, and he is eventually arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the temple. He is charged with blasphemy against God. Specifically, he is charged with speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, that he speaks against the holy place and the law. Basically, they're saying he was speaking against God's word, that's the law, and against God's presence, that's the temple. Everything about who God is, how he has revealed himself to us, says the Israelites, for out, throughout time, this man, Stephen, speaks against those things. You see, the leaders saw the temple, they saw the law as a validation, as a tangible validation of God's favor for God's people. They had these tangible things they could hold on to. God has provided us with this temple. God has provided us with his word, with the law. And that means that we're in the right. That God is for us. And based on these outward things, whatever we do, whatever steps we take, God is clearly for us because we still have these outward things. The problem is that they had the same problem that really has been plaguing humanity throughout history the, they elevated the gifts of God above the giver of the gifts. They took something that God had given them that was meant to help them, that was meant to reveal his goodness and point them to something even better, and instead they viewed it in essence and worshipped it to an unhealthy level. They elevated the law and temple to a thing that went beyond just a, a way to worship, a way to engage with God, but they made it more important than God in some ways. 
And this is not new of the leaders at this time. And so, like I said, this was an issue throughout history. And so what we're going to read this morning is that Stephen goes to give these leaders a little bit of a reminder of their own history. And in doing so, he points out the problems. He points out and defends himself against these allegations and points out and says, this is something that has been going on for generations. And for generations, you have been missing the point because the point is Jesus. So that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and get to work. So please, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and worship and celebrate and sing and pray and open your word and be with you and slow down in the midst of a life and world that is constantly noisy, constantly on the move, constantly going. You give us this time each week to just slow down. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to just slow down. You opened our eyes this morning. You give us air in our lungs this morning, and you don't waste days. You don't waste time, which means you have a reason and purpose for today. You have a reason and purpose for us to be in this passage this morning. And that reason and purpose might be different for every one of us here. And so, God, I pray that you would help us as we hear your word as we study, as we hear from you, that you would help us, that God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us minds to comprehend, give us hearts to believe, give us hands and feet to respond to what it is you have for us today. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. So we're going to pick it up in Acts uh, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. We're going to stop there. If you uh, get our emails, we, we're trying, um, as we've said, as we're walking through Acts, Acts has a lot going on. This speech here, Stephen's speech this morning, um, is actually the longest of all the speeches throughout the book of Acts. It's uh, 60, 60 verses. Um, and so we're going to be covering a lot Today we cover a lot when we study the book of Acts, and so we're sending out during the week uh, a reminder ahead of time that says, go ahead and read over some things, just so you're coming in familiar, so we don't have to go, because uh, so we're, we're not going to be able to go verse by verse throughout all of Acts, or else we're going to be preaching Acts until, like, all these little, little kids are all adults. Um, and so Acts 7, like I said, is the longest of these speeches, and Stephen, what he is doing, as I said, is defending himself really against these a allegations. We saw him in verse 1 right there. The high priest asked him, are these things so? Are these allegations brought against you so? And so the way I want to kind of set this up this morning is we're going to look at these allegations against Stephen. And so the first one is the allegation of that he has blasphemed, uh, blasphemed against the law, against God's word, against how God has revealed himself and connected with his people. And so Abraham, so Stephen starts and he goes to Abraham. He starts in the place where all good Israelites are going to start. He goes back to the beginning, back to their father, Abraham. 
And God tells Abraham to leave his home, his family, his heritage. Abraham, I want you to take a walk is basically what God says. If you're looking for something to study this week, if you're uh, running out of things to, and, and you want some direction and what to study this week, um, there's a lot of Old Testament today that connects to what Stephen has to say. And so uh, Genesis 12 through really like chapter 25 is the story of Abraham and God's call to Abraham uh, and his anointing and relationship with him. And so God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave this lineage. I want you to leave this place. And I want you to take a walk and just stop when I tell you to stop. The place he was going, God promised Abraham, would be for him and for his children and his children's children and his children's children's children. It would be a legacy. It would be an inheritance for generations. But in the meantime, Abraham goes to this place and it's never really home for him. He lives as a pilgrim. He lives as an outsider. As Stephen says in verse 5, he never owns even a foot's length in this place God has promised for him. And on top of that, God makes this promise. He says, Abraham, I want you to take a walk. I'm going to show you this place. I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance for you and your kids. But when God makes this promise, Abraham has no kids. Abraham's wife is barren, and she won't give birth and fulfill this promise from God for another 25 years. From when God says, Abraham, I'm going to give to you an inheritance of land and of descendants, there's 25 more years of not having kids. And by the time uh, she gives birth, she's 90, Abraham is 100 years old. So at 75, when Abraham receives this promise, he leaves everything he knew, everything he had, and he follows God's call on his life with just the promise of a promise to trust it. And this is why Stephen starts with Abraham to begin his defense, because the defense is you speak against God's word, you speak against this thing, the law that has united and built our people, has given us direction, given us identity. The law has not only instructed us on how to interact with God, but how to interact with one another, how to interact and be God's people, and you speak against that, Stephen. But in Genesis 15, 6, we see that it says, Abraham believed the Lord and, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God makes this promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you descendants. You and your descendants will be a blessing throughout history. And Abraham, it says, believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Before there was a law. Before there was a temple, before there was even a land for the temple to be on, Abraham had a relationship with God, had faith in God, trusted in God, and because of his faith and obedience, he was given this unearned favor of God, this righteousness that he did not earn. But because he had faith in God's promise, Abraham was counted as righteous. Stephen is making the point that though Abraham predates the temple and predates the law, when he had no tangible evidence of God's favor other than a promise that it was coming, Abraham trusted in God, had faith in God, and he was deemed righteous in God's eyes. Now eventually the promises of God were kept because that's who our God is. He is a promise keeper. And Abraham does have a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob who would eventually have his name changed to... I knew that section was going to know it. And Israel would have 12 sons, among other kids, and those 12 sons would become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 was Joseph. Now, Joseph was the favorite of his father. Of, amongst the sons, he was the favorite in his father's eyes, and his brothers hated him for it. 
His father didn't do him any favors. He treated him better. He spoiled him, gave him nice, the, the multicolored cloak, as many of us, if you grew up in church, know about. Joseph's story, again, if you're looking for something to read this week, Genesis 37 through 46 gives the accounts of what happens between Joseph, his brothers, and his father. Ultimately, what happens is his brothers get so jealous of Joseph, they hate Joseph so much that they sell him to some travelers, and eventually he becomes a slave in Egypt. But God was at work through the midst of everything that was happening. In fact, if you skip down in our passage in chapter 7 of Acts, if you skip down to verse 9, it says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. God was with him, intimately connected to him. And just like with Abraham, Joseph predates the law. He predates the temple. He predates what the Israelites knew as religion and relationship with God. Joseph stands well before those things. And Stephen is saying, look, it's possible to have a relationship with God that goes before the law, which means the law comes secondary to having a relationship with God. He didn't need those things to have a relationship with God. God was with him at all times, and he is with us at all times. And Joseph will eventually become the ruler of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in power and influence. And because of this, Joseph is able to help and really be a savior to his family and vicariously a savior of sorts for all of the line of promise for the Jewish people. He is able to continue the line of the Jewish people because of the position God puts him in. Joseph is abandoned and betrayed by those closest to him. And because of that, he was put into a position that only, as the only possible means of hope and life. Joseph not only validates Stephen's point regarding having a relationship with God that goes beyond the law and before the law and the temple, but he also serves to make a third point for Stephen. That everything about history, especially everything about the history of God's people, all the ways in God's, that God directly and in, indirectly intervened, all the ways that God cared and protected and provided for them, all the ways that he forgave them, all the ways that he sent leaders to call them out when they were in sin and call them back to himself, all of these things were pointing to the future coming of the Messiah that is Jesus Christ. It is a point that we'll see more clearly and even directly stated by Stephen as he continues. But the history of Abraham and Joseph and their relationships with God that predate the law and the temple and any other tangible outward provisions by God serves us today as well. Though Abraham and Joseph had intimate relationship with God, he was with them, he led them, he guided them. He guided them. They both suffered. They both were attacked, and they did not have what you would call an easy life. Abraham multiple times faces the attacks of outsiders and even kings on his life. He is a pilgrim. He is a sojourner. He's never really at home. He's constantly on the move. Joseph, as I said, was sold by his brothers, was a prisoner, was a slave. And when he did have a glimmer of hope, he was forgotten and left for dead in a jail cell. But both men had God with them. Both men trusted, even in the hard, dark days, they trusted God's word in their lives. The Sanhedrin, these Pharisees and Sadducees, these leaders of the temple, they believed that they were in the right because they were appointed keepers of the law and the temple. It was their job, it was their purpose to protect God's word and to protect God's house. And they believed that because they had these tangible things, 
because they had this power and authority, it made them better. It set them apart. It made them closer to God, even more so than any other Jews. They saw their status as a sign of approval by God, that he supported them, because otherwise, why would they have the roles and reputation and influence if they weren't supported by God? They believed that their outward, earthly status signaled that they also had God's favor, but that's not always how it works. Your outward, earthly standing and achievements do not determine your standing and validation with God. Meaning for those of you who think that maturity and standing as a Christian is determined by how much you attend church, how often you put money in the basket, and how involved you are in serving, you are no different than those who sat on the council accusing Stephen. These leaders made an, made an idol out of good things that God gave them, the law and the temple, these things that were to serve them, to point them to something even greater. They took these things that pointed people to God and pointed them back to themselves. They took these things that were supposed to point people to the Messiah, to Jesus, these temporary things that were never supposed to be the point, and they tried to make them the point. And today, when you elevate roles in the church or even just your abilities and talents and involvement as somehow making yourself greater and better than someone else, you are no different than those leaders. And on the flip side of that, for those who don't have it all together, for those who are struggling, for you who are exhausted, who are questioning, who are doubting, those who are trying to piece together what they believe, who are just trying to figure out what it is that defines them, those thoughts, those questions, those worries and doubts do not define you. Last week, Vadim nailed it. He said, your weariness does not disqualify you. You don't think Abraham got weary as he wandered looking for a home? As he waited for those 25 years, as he watched, as he got up every morning feeling all of that 90, 80, 90, 100 years old, watching his wife get older and older, seeing, having this promise in the back of his head that God was going to provide, don't you think he got tired of waiting? You don't think Joseph got weary? You don't think that he was constantly waiting and hoping and longing for something? And that gets old after time. He's sitting in a jail cell waiting. Their frustrations did not undermine their place with God. Our outward standing, what we think that we can bring to impress God, what we think we can do to earn and win our way into his heart, it is a broken needle that is missing the point. What was counted to Abraham as righteousness, what, was held, what upheld Joseph as he was locked away in a dungeon was their faith in God was their trust in him and trust in the promise and trust in his character. What has been true since the beginning of humanity is still true today. Your standing with God, your relationship with him is based in your faith, in your trust, in who he is and his provision for you. Now from that and out of that should flow tangible examples, tangible expressions of our faith, but they are not the result nor the reason for our standing with our right standing with God. That alone stands because we, are, we have that right standing with God and it is made possible by putting our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That and that alone. And from that should be an outpouring of responding to God with service, with care for one another, with the desire to build community. But those things do not save you, do not elevate you in the kingdom of God. 
Stephen has used both Abraham and Joseph as examples of having deep, real relationship with God that predates the law, that predates the temple. But what about Moses? I mean, if we're going to talk about the bigwigs, we're going to talk about those names that we put up on pedestals, what about Moses? What about the man most identified with receiving of the law? Why would Stephen even bring him up? Because Moses and the law, those things are intertwined in the minds of the Israelites. So why go to Moses? But that's exactly where he goes. Pick it up in verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 7. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed on all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. See, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, this council held Moses up as the one who brought the law, the one who led them to the promised land. And while that is true, that's not the whole story. Because the story of Moses leading God's people involves a lot of complaining, name-calling, and outright rejecting of Moses by those very people he was sent to save. God put Moses in a place so that he would be a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's home so that when the right time came, he would be the exact kind of person the Israelites needed and would want to deliver them. But instead, they reject Moses. He wasn't accepted by the Hebrews, and he wasn't truly an Egyptian, so he was always kind of a little bit kept, a, kept a, at an arm's length. And now this happens, he kills an Egyptian, now he's a murderer, now he's a criminal, and so he leaves Egypt and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. While there, God shows up in the flame of a fire in a bush, and God officially sends Moses back to Egypt to lead God's people out of slavery. Once again, Moses shows us the relationship with God was not limited to a place. There's a temple, and the temple is great, and the temple is where God's people meet God and worship God. Amen. Moses was out in the middle of nowhere, and he has an encounter with God. He didn't have a temple, and yet he still engaged with God personally. It says in verse 34, as Stephen is quoting and reminding them, he says in verse 34, he's quoting God, it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Once again, Stephen is using this shared history of everybody listening to point them to Moses. Yes, but not just to point them to Moses, but beyond him to Jesus himself. Moses was sent by God to the people and rejected by those people. 
And in spite of that rejection, Moses still leads the people out of slavery. And even after that happens, the people still complain and argue and turn to idols. Stephen reminds them in verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Even when the people had someone directly sent to them by God, even when they were led out of slavery, which they had been in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years, they were led out of slavery by the hand of Moses, even when they were literally living as free people on their way to a land God provided for them, this new life, this new hope, they would still continuously throughout the history of the Israelites would revert back to idols, trusting in anything and anyone other than God every time. Jesus was sent by God. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, comes to God's people, and is mostly rejected. And even in the midst of that rejection, in the midst of the screams for him to be strung up on a cross, in the midst of the mocking and the vulgarities and the hate, he delivers them. He delivers us out of the slavery to sin. He delivered us out of hell. He delivers us to freedom. And even though we live post the cross, post the resurrection, even though we know intellectually, and for many of us know experientially, we know that he has granted us new life and new hope and new identity over and over again. We return to our idols. We return to our man-made imitation gods over and over, seeking pleasure and comfort and satisfaction that they will never provide. Moses himself told the people in verse 37, one is, who is greater than me is going to come. That one is Jesus. Jesus is greater not only than Moses, but the law that would, which was delivered to the people by Moses. Stephen, over and over, is pointing the Sanhedrin to the past, but he's merely showing them what they already should have known, that the law was never meant to be the ultimate saving thing. It was never even meant to be here forever. But rather, it was the thing that pointed the people to their need for a savior, to point the people and show them just how in trouble they were in their relationship with God. To point them to their need for the Messiah, and that Jesus is that Messiah, that chosen, set-apart one. Over and over, Stephen has pointed and said, look, you have complained, you have told me, and you have accused me of speaking against the law. But the law doesn't save it's never been the thing that builds the relationship because the relationship between God and humanity has always been there. He has chosen us. But what about this allegation against the blaspheming of the temple? Because Stephen does quote Jesus in talking about the temple being destroyed. And what about that, Stephen? What about the fact that you speak against the presence of God because the temple for us, that's, that's home base. That no matter how messed up the world gets, no matter how ugly life gets, no matter how many different other groups overthrow us and take over us, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Romans, it doesn't matter who's in charge, we have the temple and that's where God dwells, that's where we can engage with him. And Stephen says, yeah, you can, but you don't have to be limited to just that place. Stephen takes the accounts of the people making idols such as the golden calf to worship to show them that what he was critiquing was not the temple itself or even what it represented, but rather that the leaders had made the temple into a false idol just like their ancestors had with the golden calf. 
They had become to worship the temple just as his ancestors had worshipped the golden calf instead of worshipping God. He continues by talking about the tent of witness, the tabernacle, this traveling space that was designed by God to be a place where the people could worship. It would act as a physical reminder that God and his presence was with the people all of the time. They had it in the wilderness. They had it when they finally make it to the promised land. David even has it brought to Jerusalem when he becomes king. And he wanted to make something even greater, but God designates David's son for that task. But even then, God had already told the people in verse 48. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in the house made by hands, as the prophet says. Verse 49 says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Tabernacle and synagogue, they're nice. Church buildings are nice. Having set apart space to worship is a blessing. But as soon as you begin to raise up the place of God over God, you've turned it into an idol. That's what they had done with the temple. They had raised its value and importance above God himself, when in actuality all of creation is God's. There is nothing on this earth that isn't his. All of creation is his temple. The tabernacle, the temple, church buildings, they are a gift from God to us. They are a place for us to be and to worship and gather and have a set-apart space, a tool to be used with connecting with God. We've also seen already multiple times in this passage that you can and should connect and have a relationship with God outside of this building on Sunday morning for a couple hours. Otherwise, the relationship you think you have within this building is fake. If your entire relationship with God is based upon being inside this building, then the relationship you think you have with him inside this building isn't real. It's here in verse 51 that Stephen finally sums things up and turns towards the leaders. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not, fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The Bible has way heavier insults than we can come up with today. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Stephen was accusing Stephen was accused of rejecting God's word and rejecting God's presence. And what he has been telling them is that they've been rejecting God's word and presence over and over again. How many prophets were actually accepted when they brought the word of judgment and repentance to the people? Over and over throughout history, the Israelites chose themselves over God, and yet he continued to forgive and call them back to himself. They rejected God's word. They rejected God's presence. They rejected God himself when they betrayed and murdered him and put him on a cross. I wonder at what point, as Stephen is giving this speech, as he starts talking, he brings up Abraham, and these are professional, you know, these are Pharisees, these are scribes, these are men who literally have the first five books of the Bible memorized forwards and backwards. It was a test you had to do to be a Pharisee. You literally have that memorized. And Stephen starts, as they give him these allegations, Stephen starts talking about Abraham. And then he goes to Joseph. He's talking about Moses. 
And I wonder how long this council is sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? Why is he bringing these things up? And at what point in the midst of what Stephen is saying did these leaders realize what he was talking about? How long, did they, how long did it take before they realized that as he walked through their history, they were obviously well acquainted with it, that what he was doing was not as much defending himself but accusing them of the very things that they were trying to judge him for. Eventually, when he comes flat out and says, you killed Jesus, you have rejected the law, you have rejected God's presence, now they get angry. It says in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They were full of anger at the way that he has been speaking to them. In verse 55, it says, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The act of stoning was not like took a handful of rocks and threw it at him over and over again. It was akin more so to taking boulders, taking cinder blocks, and bashing him with it until he died. It was messy and gruesome. There was a serious mob mentality. When somebody got stoned, it was the culmination of a lot of anger and rage. But Stephen is calm, cool, and collected. He sees not only what is happening, but he sees beyond it. Stephen saw Jesus. Now, I don't know if this was a vision just for him or if the skies opened and there was like this crack in the window of heaven. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but Stephen looks up in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is a title Jesus used of himself very often. It refers to a prophecy in the book of Daniel in Daniel 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's a phrase that in the New Testament, it's often seen in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark. But it's always spoken by Jesus. In fact, the only two people who use the phrase Son of Man in the Gospels are Jesus speaking of himself and here with Stephen. So why this phrase? Why did, Je why did Stephen call Jesus the Son of Man? He saw Jesus. He saw the Vindicator. He saw the one with power and dominion and glory, the one who reigns and rules over his kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, that cannot and will not pass away. Not too long before these events happened with Stephen, another man was brought before the same council for almost identical allegations that he spoke blasphemy against God. 
And Jesus, already having been beaten up, is directly asked in Mark 14, are you the Christ? To which Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. I am the guy, and I will sit at the right hand of God, is what he told the Sanhedrin. Stephen makes a very similar statement to the council, only in his vision, the Son of Man is not seated at the right hand. He sees the Son of Man doing what? What's he doing? Standing. The Son of Man is standing. Why? Because when we think about Jesus, for those of us who have a Bible background, you've read your, your New Testament, when we talk about Jesus, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews 10, all of us give Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then he is seated on his throne in heaven. He defeats sin and death and the, through the cross, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Hebrews 10 especially talks about he's seated waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And yet here, Stephen sees Jesus standing. Why? Jesus said himself in Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. To acknowledge is to confess or profess. It is to testify, as in you are in court and you have to tell the truth. You testify on behalf of someone. Stephen stands before this council, condemned, and as he stands, not in his own wit and wisdom, not on his experience, not on his gifts and abilities, but rather, it says in verse 55, he is full of the Holy Spirit. This speech, what Stephen is doing, standing here boldly proclaiming these things, is not because he's all that impressive, but because he is full of the Holy Spirit. He stands firm and steadfast, declaring the reality of the gospel and the reality of the sovereignty of Jesus. And as that happens, Jesus stands in heaven, testifying on Stephen's behalf. As Satan levies charges against Stephen, accusations and evidences brought to God the Father, our judge, Jesus stands in heaven and says, no, he's with me. He's mine. My blood covers his, sten his sins. Stephen's one of mine. Satan, you have no hold here. We have an advocate for the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands on his nail-scarred feet and calls us his own. Jesus stands for Stephen because he knows what's coming. He knows Stephen, as it says at the very end of the verse, at the very end of the passage, when he said these things, he fell asleep. He knows that Stephen will soon close his eyes on this world and he will not be lost or abandoned or misplaced or forgotten. He will fall asleep, and when he opens his eyes after the sleep, he will see Jesus ready to welcome him into the kingdom. Jesus stands to welcome Stephen, the first of many to die for the faith, and stands to embrace Stephen and say those words that every Christian longs to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, Stephen. Well done, my brother. Come and enjoy what your faith has granted you. And these are suggestions. We don't have the reasoning. But we do know that Jesus is the advocate for the, to the Father on our behalf. And we do know he is the comforter, the good shepherd, who will lay down his life for the sheep and who will carry the sheep when we are too weak and too broken to go forward. The day is coming for the ones who will stand firm, for the ones who will endure, for the ones who will cling to him, that one day we will wake up from the sleep of death and we will see Jesus and we will stand before him and he will stand before us and welcome us home. Welcome us as his brothers and sisters into eternity in the midst of the kingdom of God. 
Stephen's life ended because when he had the chance, when he was put on the spot to give an account for what he believed, he told people what he knew. And what he knew was that the law and the temple and those things were gifts from God to help us see past those gifts to what they represented. He stood firm on the truth of the gospel, the truth that God came and made a way for us to have a right relationship with him based wholly and solely on the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Stephen stands and gives his testimony. He stands and testifies to that truth. Stephen was so full of the Spirit, so in line with the character and will of God, even his final statements echo the words of Jesus at the cross. While Stephen is being pummeled to death by large stones, he asks God for those who are actively murdering him that they would not be held liable for their actions in God's eyes. And he could do that because he knew he was about to go to sleep but wake up to Jesus. To be eye to eye with his Savior and Jesus would say to him, welcome home. He knows that Jesus was testifying on his behalf because he testified on Christ's behalf. He proclaimed, he professed his faith in Christ here, and so Christ did the same for him in heaven. Oh, may we all hold fast and endure, even when it is to our detriment. As we remember the one who welcomes us, he himself endured on our behalf and continues to hold fast to us, not for just now, but for all of eternity. I have a note here in my Bible that I I wrote at some point on verse 55. Quite simply, my prayer for all of us is that may this, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, may this be our last sight on earth before we close our eyes and open them in his glory. Let's pray.